all I want to talk about is that John Dupont is a crazy person. I want to devote. I want to talk about this with you all. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shukvastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? We have been busy, busy, busy. We have been busy, busy. Lots and lots of interviews. Lots of good stuff coming up. So excited. We learned, we've learned a lot of things, too. Uh, I mean, like you think you know a sport, and, and you don't know anything about the sport. Well, I never think I know anything, so I just assume <laughs> that I'm going to be learning a lot. But what I have learned a great deal in a lot of our interviews, is, and I knew this before, but I really have a hard time with left and right. <laughs> and I always blamed it on the fact that I'm left-handed, so I was always doing things ba- backwards from everybody else mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. I think now it's just because I'm stupid. Oh, don't say that. Book club. It's time for another book club episode, and Book Club Claire is back for our discussion of Foxcatcher by Mark Schultz. And because it's a book about wrestling, the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant join in to give some context to the sport and times of this event. Take a listen. We are talking about Foxcatcher in our book club for this quarter, I guess you would say. It was written by Mark Schultz with David Thomas. And not only do we have... Jill and Allison here to give their feedback, but we also have the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant. And I am quite excited because this is the first time I've gotten to meet you in person. Well, meet you face to face online. So it's wonderful to have you here, Jason. It's it's pandemic face to face. So book club. All right. So Jason, you have read this book before. Am I correct in saying that? Yes. I figured I read it, it would, so. really, really right when it came out. So it, it, it has been a couple years. So uh, there, there may need to be a little bit of a refresher here. But yeah, read the book, saw the movie, uh, seen the documentaries. No Nancy. Used to talk to Mark pretty regularly. Not so much in the last decade or so. But uh, yeah, I'm familiar with with the situation and the book and what's true and what's dramatized. I guess. Oh, now that really has me curious. What do you mean by dramatized? From the movie, not the book. Oh, uh, okay. So okay. There's, there's obviously, as you may have read, there's differences between the uh, the adaptation that Bennett Miller did and, and Mark's biography, for lack of a better term. Okay. Well, we'll, well, we'll hold that for movie club. Yes. Right. Yeah. Ooh, I wanted movie club. That. So, uh, Jill and Allison, this was my first time reading it. I think it might be yours as well. I want to get your thoughts uh, overall on the book as a whole. No, you don't. <laughs> Allison, I hear that you got through this really fast, as did I. It took me like I did, two days. I did get it through it very, very quickly, though occasionally, and I will be completely honest and very literal, I threw the book a couple times and not because of John DuPont. Yeah, I found, Mar- I, I found Mark Schultz to be an incredibly difficult person to sympathize with and 
obviously losing your brother is horrific and no one deserves that. And I don't feel bad for him for a lot of the other things that happened in his life. Jill? And this book took me forever to get through. I was excited for a quick read, but this was like reading David Clay Large's book on Munich, 1972. It was so hard to read, except for the parts about Dave Schultz. When he actually talked about his brother, that was interesting, and I was excited, and i that's what tugged at my heartstrings more because Dave seemed like such a great guy and to have this happen would just rob the world of a good person. On the other hand, I wanted to hook Mark Schultz up with Shirley Babishoff because they seemed like two peas in a pod, very bitter about a lot of life. Yeah, I I didn't get as much uh, bitterness as you two both did. I kind of, I was reading this while I was like away from everything and disconnected from the world. So I just kind of sped right through it and could understand, you know, the the troubles that he had. It was, it was good to see that he would be readily able to admit a lot of the wrongs that he had taken, the dips he had taken in his life. I could definitely tell times when he was doing the writing and when his ghostwriter was doing the writing uh, that there were a lot, there were a couple of times there where all of a sudden they got very informative and I thought, that's not the author saying that. Uh, But there were other times like when he was talking all about his wrestling uh, and the, and the matches that he, he and Dave both did some of the moves that they had to make, you know, that's definitely spoken with a wrestler's tone, which kind of meant it went over my head, but I could understand that. I enjoyed the book for what it was, um, and I am interested. I haven't seen the movie yet, so I want to kind of see how that all comes into play. Jason, what are your thoughts on the book in the environment of wrestling that you are so inside? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's there's a lot of books that come out about wrestling, and not all of them are, are get this type of play. Foxcatcher actually had some legitimate chops behind it in terms of publishing where to get it. It wasn't like okay, order it from this guy's website. This would you can find it readily everywhere. Um, in terms of speed, you know, I'm not an avid reader. I am a you know sometimes I will pick up a book and crush it. Sometimes I'll just I'll struggle through it. So like the last big book I read was the last the Hunger Games prequel that came out and it was like, I blistered through that in a weekend and that thing was like biblical. So I mean, it was, it was a large read. Whereas like something like Foxcatcher, I remember getting on the plane. Uh, I might've taken me one trip, like to and from, I finished it in two sittings from my perspective, because it was a lot of, a lot of wrestling, you know, the distinction of who is involved, the people involved. These are people that are, you know, the secondary characters that are, that are named throughout the book are people that are still involved in the sport or there were high level people that I've heard stories about that were active before I got into it. So, uh, and, and, you know, 10, 15 years older than I am. So the prime of their careers was when I was getting into it. So I'm in, I'm looking at this through the wrestling vein of it's interesting because I get to see the stories and getting to know Nancy Schultz later, later on in, in my professional career, I've only heard bits and pieces of, of the, the Mark side of the story. Cause you know, Mark and I, kind of knew each other 15, 20 years ago. But other than that, there, there's not much of a relationship there. I've tried to get him on the show a couple of times and uh, that hasn't worked out so well, especially uh, when he was still positive about the film. But when I, we come to reading it, I flew through it because it's it's my wheelhouse. Like that is like 
I want to read about Mark. I want to read about Dave. I want to read about Nancy. I want to read about Xander and Danny. Uh, I, I want to read about the kids. I want to know. I lived not that far away from that when I lived in Pennsylvania for a couple of years. I, I want to know about the Foxcatcher Club. I want to, you know, I've got friends that that speak about being on the farm. So when I'm looking at it, I'm reading stuff and it's, oh, I've heard Rob Cole tell that story. Oh, I've heard Ray Brinzer tell that story. Oh, I've heard Rich Bender tell that story. You know, these are, these are, you know, I'm I'm seeing it in print, validating some of the the claims that have been made about Dupont over the years. So, I looked at it, you know, and I and I, I didn't put the nuance to it as far as you know how it was written because sometimes if you're so, so immersed in a topic, it could be the worst written thing in the world, and you're going to get the key points out of it no matter if the prose is a little choppy or it's it's written over somebody's head. So. Uh, from a wrestling perspective, it was a quick read and it was, I, I found it educational, not necessarily in the terms of like, oh, I am, you know, I am smarter for having read this, but I'm definitely now, it, it fills in some gaps for me contextually about stories I had only heard about. So uh, from, from that perspective, it was, it was, a, it was a read that again, you know, like I said, filled some gaps. Did you find the wrestling dramatization accurate or was it missing pieces? Oh, as far as the way they're written in the book, no. Uh, everything in terms of the wrestling terminology, and you know, I you obviously sometimes you have to dumb down the technique, for lack of a better term, for because if if you're writing about a wrestling move and you say it's one thing regionally, it could be that in Northeast Ohio, or it could be that com- same move could be, be something completely different in Southern California. So you have to you know work on the technique a little bit. So when it's a little more descriptive or, or just a little more bland where you just say arm throw versus, you know, you step, you know, versus a, a naming the move. So um, I didn't feel like the wrestling was overblown or, or even, you know, accentuated. I thought it was pretty true to life and, and how uh, the, the type of matches were depicted. Now, maybe uh, some of the weight cutting stories that were prevalent in the book. I'm like, eh, I don't know. I mean, is that, that's, that's Mark's perspective on it. So again, this is his story. So I, you know, it's hard to say, well, that's not how it happened if that's how he remembers it. So it's kind of hard, you know, it's his perspective. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And, you know, sometimes, you know, truth is sometimes stranger than fiction and in a sport like wrestling with it's all its isms and nuances and uniquenesses, nothing that I read about the wrestling part of it would surprise me. Allison and Jill, did this educate you at all in the wrestling that you were familiar with? I know you've had interviews with, you know, with Jason as, and learn more about wrestling. Did this help you understand wrestling even more than that? I think for me, I kept touching back to our interview, Jason, and just wrestling back in the day when rules were different and changed quite frequently and putting it into kind of that perspective of the wrestling in the book is different from the way wrestling is today, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, rule sets have, have, I mean, they're almost very similar to what they used to be, although, you know, when, when the Schultzes were coming through in, in 84 and 88, but, you know, time periods are a little different. The, the bracketing system's different. Um, scoring is a little different, but ultimately the techniques stay the same. So we are closer now to what we were in the late eighties, early nineties, than the gap between, uh, like 2005 and 2012, which was the dark ages for, for, for wrestling with the, binary code of, uh, you know, Oh, one, one, Oh, one, Oh scores, uh, you know, a tennis style two out of three. So when it comes to the actual wrestling scoring bracketing, yes, it's different. 
And now you can you cannot take a loss and win a gold medal. Now you could back in that area because uh, era because of the pool system and just just how this is how it was scored and, and you know, they used a black mark system prior to that. It was just it's a little wonky in terms to try to explain it because I was a kid when those things were going on. But uh, yeah, the the wrestling scoring and bracketing from the era Mark is writing about is different than what we will see uh, come Tokyo. I mean, for me, definitely when he was talking specifically about moves and techniques that was very new to me you know my wrestling education has been with jason and the research i did related to those uh interviews so it's not a sport that i ever watched growing up it's it's not something that i that that we had at my high school or that i ever saw so this was very as a sport still very uncomfortable for me in that i don't get it when I watch it, it's like I realize when somebody wins and I get the excitement of it, but I do not understand the nuances. So a lot of the things that he was talking about in the book, I just sort of went with it and followed the story rather than mm-hmm. all those small, I put my arm this way. I did this to this athlete and, and one, I said, okay, I understand winning. So let's go with that. I got to say, I also don't have a whole lot of wrestling experience. It it was a struggle for me to go through the matches when he started to get in great detail. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would just gloss over. It's like, who won? And that's the stuff <laughs> I live for. That's 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 my education. That's me getting to know that story. You know, with any wrestling book I read, if it's because I'm not there in that era. You know, my wrestling knowledge starts around 1998, and I've had to backtrack. So I'm still catching up. I'm, you know, catching up on those stories from the eighties because those people are still alive and can tell them. So when I hear nuances about what happens in matches, that's, that's my wheelhouse. And maybe that affects how you enjoy the book, because if you love that kind of stuff, it, when it comes, you gobble it up mm-hmm. as for, as for maybe the three of us, we tend to go f- more for the, for the throwing the book against the wall because of more of the personal dramas that were experienced. The, the other thing I found is that I, I'm starting, after having read a few books in with book club, I'm looking for an author who can differentiate one match from another. They all start sounding alike after a certain point. And even if you proceed that with, this is the world champs or this is the Olympics, Everything after that doesn't kind of make sense. And I, I feel like I need that interjected in the importance or relevance of the match we the, the match we're reading about and why it made it into the book kind of thing. I mean, an Olympic match or a world championships, duh, but other other kinds of things. What's the what's the importance of oh, I went to uh, we went to the Soviet Union or Russia or getting on to back to Dave, like, why did he learn Russian kind of thing? One of the things that I found very frustrating with this book, and, and we've talked about this before, I think with Shirley Babishoff's book, was what kind of book do you want to be? Do you want to tell the wrestling? Do you want to talk about all the matches? Do you want to get into all the different coaching styles and the different gyms and the different colleges? Or do you want to tell the Foxcatcher story? Because Foxcatcher is the title, but we don't get to Foxcatcher until we're page 163. You know, we're well, well into the book. And we've spent 160 pages talking about where he puts his arm. But then after that, 
it, it sort of changes into this other story. So I found that very frustrating that I didn't know which story we, we want to tell, both of which are valid, both of which could be, have been really interesting books, but it felt very smushed together for me. Yeah, I think putting the Foxcatcher name on a book like this was tricky, but I don't think it would have sold as well if it had just been a biography of Marshall's. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he, you know what he was trying, or what at least the publisher was trying to do by sticking that name on it, and it worked. Welcome to yeah. wrestling books. So it's it's funny because there was, for example, there was a movie that just came out that I was in called The Last Champion. And the argument from the wrestling community was there wasn't enough wrestling in it. Well, the, we'll, we'll apply the same thing to a book. If you want mainstream appeal from a movie, the more wrestling, the less mainstream appeal you're going to get. So you got to You get a. It, I agree. And now that Allison, good point about it being two separate stories within one bound volume, so to speak, it was because there were two distinct stories that were woven together. So you want the wrestling, wrestling people are going to want the wrestling story because there is definitely distinct, unique wrestling stories there that, that cater to people like me and we would have bought the book. Then there's the people who are always curious about DuPont who want to know that, that what the sinister story about what happened with Foxcatcher. And they're going to want to know that story. And like you guys are going to kind of, eh, okay, wrestling it's there. It's to, to, to half the readers wrestling's the backdrop. To the other half of the readers, wrestling's the story. And I, I guess I can see the the conundrum in trying to say, where do we where do we balance that? Because I feel both stories are valid in terms of being told. Good point to bring up. I mean, is this is this uh do something very different when the wrestling, you know, chapter, you know, part one wrestling, part two, the farm. I mean, how do you break that up and it it be a a d and then put it together? To where it, it reads like it's one book so i definitely agree with the it's a it's a tale of two different stories within one book and it's hard because i mean we're kind of sold on the fox catcher bit but then you realize that mark and dave weren't at the farm at the same time right and trying to find you know what does mark actually know about that time and even we didn't get a whole lot of wrestling at the farm or wrestling while he was at villanova because there was a lot of, more of John DuPont was weird and creepy and I didn't like him. That that came out a whole lot more than the actual wrestling, which I would have appreciated like understanding it in some way, having the resources of the farm and John DuPont's money, what that did for that team didn't come across to me in this book. Like what what those athletes could do mm -hmm. because they had that funding. And why they stayed with the guy who was really creepy, because there was a, an opportunity. To the point there too is it, it we're you know we're not flush with funds in the sport of wrestling now. It's a lot better than it used to be. But here comes a guy that's you know a lot of people were willing to look the other way because he was funding some of you know funding our national. The U.S. national championships were named the John Dupont National Championships. I mean, his name was on everything. I mean, I'm looking through uh, an amateur wrestling news from 1990 or might've been eight, might've been back in early nineties. And it's like, you know, I'm flipping through for some results, looking for something. And there's, there's a, a an ad for team Foxcatcher with, you know, coaching staff It's like John DuPont, Greg Strobel, you know, Dale Bonzel, like come train with the best. And then on the other page is like results of the, you know, of an Olympic festival or the John DuPont U S national championship. So 
Uh, this is a guy that was putting a lot of money into the system, which there was no money to begin with. Guys are working as, as assistant wrestling coaches, like uh, like it's depicted both in, in the book and the film. And um, the situation was, okay, well, there's there's a way to fund it. So there there's a story right there is there's still a lot of, you know, to be a high-level wrestler, there's a lot of poverty involved. And this is something that that allured people and you know, allured people to the farms. Oh, wow, we can we can get paid to train. You know, this is the late 80s. This is happening. So and that was just unheard of. Not only that, it was also, you know, there were there were foreign athletes training like Valentin Jordanov was was training there. You know, I believe he was the heir to the to to John DuPont's estate, you know, or wherever his will was, whatever was left of it in his inheritance or whatever. But it was it was very different in terms of how that whole landscape was in that era. And that's the overarching theme of all the books that we've ever read about the Olympics is not the Olympics. It's about the amateur slash professional aspect of it. And we are, this book, I don't know if we've done any books in the 80s. I don't think we really have, but this is where it starts to change, where professional athletes are allowed more and more to be in the Olympics and to be paid to be professional athletes. And this is kind of the cusp of it. So he's talking about USA wrestling and how it really took away a lot of the money from the athletes themselves. You'd have to tell me, Jason, if this is still a thing uh, as opposed to 30 years ago, but it's, this is the, the thing where once again, it's, it's, you know, even though these authors are all working independently, they all derive that one topic of, it's really hard to be an Olympian because they didn't let us get paid. Well, it still is hard because unlike other sports like swimming or track and field, individual sports, there's only one shot at the Olympics for a particular weight class. Whereas, you know, Michael Phelps can swim how many events and a wrestler, you got one shot because very rare is the is the the athlete who can wrestle both styles because they're so different. I mean, I think you had the Swedes back in the day that would would wrestle both freestyle and Greco-Roman. So at most you get two bites at the apple, whereas uh, wrestling you got one. And now now they went from ten weight classes to now six. So right now you've got as as a male freestyle wrestler you have six shots, and the weight classes are much more spread apart and your national team stipend first, second, and third. That's what they fund from USA wrestling, not a living wage by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, you know, it's access to the training center camps, tours and things like that, but you get one shot. So, um, you know, you could have your three best runners in the world be from the United States. You could now theoretically your three best wrestlers in the world, a weight class could be from Russia. They're that good. So, but we don't have that in wrestling. So you got one shot every four years because the world championships is great. It's a tougher tournament than the Olympics, but it's tougher to get to the Olympics because there's only a 16 man bracket, whereas the world's will be up to 40 or 50 because you got opportunities. So um, in, in terms of the funding now, we have the Living the Dream Medal Fund, for example, that USA Wrestling does. The USOPC also has its own payout for, for medals. But like for, for an Olympic gold medal, this started uh, after 2008, a bunch of, you know, we had some wrestling people with some money, guys like Mike Novogratz, who's a, a you know, billionaire hedge fund guy at a, wrestled at Princeton and some others with some, some high dollars said, all right, we're going to start this living the dream metal fund. And so $250,000 goes to, uh, an Olympic gold medalist, you know, 250, 125 and 50, I think, are what we get for, for gold, silver and bronze during the Olympic year, the world's that's 50, 25 and 10 or 15. So, uh, the Olympics has that allure. So to like a Jordan Burroughs in 2012 hits 250. Good. Kyle Snyder in 2016, 250, good, and his bank account. But there's hundreds of other athletes that will miss that chance, and they're 
going to try to find a place to train, find a place to get paid. It's now you can, you can get paid by a wrestling club or uh, what they call in co- colleges are putting in these regional training centers. They call them RTCs. So uh, Penn state, Iowa, Oklahoma state, of course, the usual suspects, but then you're seeing RTCs at, at smaller schools trying to compete and get one guy to train like Clarion, for example, a small division two school in Pennsylvania with division one wrestling. They'll have athlete or two training there to try to make the national team and, and try to train for the Olympics there. And they'll have some payment from the wrestling club. So uh, there's a lot easier way to do it now. But even even through before 2008, you had a lot. We lost a lot of wrestlers going to MMA because, all right, well, what do I want to be seventh on the ladder or do I want to go punch people in the face and make some money and, and be on TV? You know, MMA was a lot more viable option for a lot of these people to make a living using their combat sports background. And even now we're seeing the WWE re-enter the fray in terms of athletes of, of the larger weight classes have an opportunity to make a living using their athletic talents. And there's less of a stigma attached to that, like the old school wrestling people. Oh, that's a disgrace to wrestling. Well, it's it's sports entertainment. OK, it's not actual wrestling. We know that it's a discreet. It's a, it's a display of athleticism. They are athletes. It's a sporting esque competition, but it's not a sport. So. Once people it, get over that, there's like how makes money on so. go to Cirque du Soleil or skaters go to Disney on Ice. Yeah, yeah, it's, absolutely. You know what was what did Will Ferrell do in uh, in Blades of Glory? You know that stuff. <laughs> so there's my there's my rant about how we uh, how we make money today compared to the Dupont era. Sure, I guess we can turn to Dupont himself. We've we haven't really talked about him too much, but yes, he was a weird person. I honestly did not know if he was still alive or dead, but that was answered at the end of the book. He he has since died, I think, 11 years ago while he was in prison. And I say uh, December 2010, if memory serves. Yeah. He just kind of wasted away in prison. I'm going to uh, have to Google that because <laughs> I remember asking, I had Xander Schultz on my show not that, uh, probably a couple of years ago and asked him the significance of the date. And he had no idea what I was, he didn't, the date didn't jump out. I was like, Oh, what's that? What's, what's that? I go, that's the day John DuPont died. And he's like, Oh, I didn't know that. So it, it's pretty interesting to see that how, how people move on from certain things and 30 something like Xander Schultz, which is, you know, Dave's son and, you know, having to deal with such a tragedy at a young age. I mean, to me, that's another story is granted. Again, this is Mark's story. This is not Mark's story about Dave. It's Mark's story about Mark. So we're not going to get the, you know, the Danielle and, and Xander story as much as the wrestling people would like to see it. It's uh, it's very interesting to, to catch the perspectives about this whole story from everybody that was involved, especially the kids who were you know, very young. I don't know Danielle. I think I've talked to her once ever. But uh, but yeah, Xander I speak to eh, a couple times a year. And it's funny you say that, Jason, because that actually, I think, was my greatest frustration with the book, that this was Mark's story. And when you look at the John DuPont elements of the story, Mark's perspective to me is not the one that I want to know more about. Like I, I kind of would like to, and I probably will go back now and watch the documentary, get that third person view of what was happening at the farm, you know, get the view of what mm-hmm. was happening at the farm when Dave was there, when his family was there. I mean, it blows my mind that if John DuPont was that nefarious and malicious that he would have his family there with him. It just seems so, you know, given what we do learn about Dave in the book, that he was very caring, that he was devoted to his family, that if John DuPont truly seemed dangerous, that he would have allowed his kids to live there with him. I just felt like something was really 
missing in what Mark was saying about what was happening at the farm. Well, again, that goes that goes to the story again where the movie moves off from the book because Mark wasn't there when Dave was killed. So a lot of that first person stuff about that time and the kids, it it they weren't there at the same time. So while there's, you know, the movie picks up with, you know, Dave living on the farm and, you know, Mark being actively involved in the club, there, you know, they did compress the timeline because again, back to what we've said, do we want more wrestling or do we want more drama? Which one's gonna, you know. If it's a wrestling story, you're not going to read about this or watch it. If it's a, dra- a dramatic story, you're going to you're going to have to make some take some creative license with the timeline. So I had less of an issue with that. But as far as you know, knowing the story of, of Danny and Xander and 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 Nancy, yeah, that's. But again, Mark wasn't there, so I guess that's one thing that you know people will say, "Oh, the timeline's not right." Well, y- you know, we look at the book. Well, Mark still wasn't there for for that particular horrible moment in time. I mean, I. You know, as much as I've heard about Dave Schultz, I, I never met the man. Uh, you know, he I I first got into international wrestling the summer after he was shot. So um I, I certainly have plenty of Dave Schultz stuff in this room right now and and amateur wrestling news is with him on the cover and things of that nature. I mean, you, you talk about how as, as an ambassador, I mean, this guy was re- just beloved worldwide. You know, the Russians loved him because he made the, he took the chance to learn their culture, speak the language just his innovations, innovation and styles and just his every man kind of look. I mean, a balding guy with a beard he, he and with those big glasses in the 80s, he, he looked like a giant nerd and he would just go beat you over the head with yourself. And, and Mark, on the other hand, Mark was much more physically imposing, a, a brute, a, a Greek god-like person who would literally, instead of beating your, 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 your head with your own arm, he would rip it off and then do it. I mean, Mark was definitely, uh, you know, was the meaner of the two. So um, Dave knew how to do the elegant violence, whereas he would definitely make you feel pain based on stories I've heard, whereas Mark would definitely know you're feeling in pain. Like So um, the two were, were vastly different personality wise based on, you know, my interactions with with those around him. But again, the stories that that we want to know about sometimes with with Dave um, aren't here because this is again, it's Mark's story. Now, Allison, you mentioned a documentary. I know there's a documentary about the story. There's several. The there's several. It. So there's there's one on Netflix. There's one on ESPN. Uh, the one on Netflix, I believe, was called Team Foxcatcher, which Nancy had something to do with. The one on ESPN, the 30 for 30, was called Prince of Pennsylvania, which was more about DuPont. And then we've got the the movie Foxcatcher, which was you know Bennett Miller's adaptation of the Mark Schultz story. So... Those all, I mean, again, you're going to see some contradictory stuff if you watch those compare the book, but um, the documentaries and the book do, you know, they run together in terms of the timeline. So that'll help you fill in the gaps with both the the questions. If you're on the wrestling side, want to know more about what was the deal with the wrestling thing. Um, the Villanova thing really isn't discussed a whole lot because um, yikes, DuPont broke every NCAA rule in the book at Villanova. That's why this, the team only lasted two years. They're like, you know, the Catholics are like, nope, we're getting rid of this. We're not dealing with this guy. So, uh, you know, of course, DuPont's name was on their natatorium forever at Villanova. So because uh, he was also very fond of swimming. Yeah. So those those documentaries will also help if you're interested in the entire scope of the story as you know, getting off track, getting back to the book here in a moment. But the whole story, there's there's so many different moving parts to it that it's just it's again, truth is stranger than fiction with this whole thing. The interesting part about this being Mark's story is that you get a sense that even though he loved his brother, but they weren't all that close. 
And of course, this is not a guy who's going to write down his life and take a journal while he's living. But I just got the impression that they weren't all that close. And at the at the end end, when he's talking about, oh, I wrote this book so that my kids would know what their old man did. That's what what he set out to write. And somebody was able to say, oh, hey, if you spin it this way, we can sell this and you can make some coin. Well, wrestling is also a very selfish sport. It is uniquely you. Yes, you need a team around you to help you train, but you know, they're, they're, you know, while they compete in the same weight class, you don't necessarily need, okay, my brother is a good wrestler too. That doesn't mean you're going to go train with your brother because as I said, stylistically, they were vastly different where, you know, Dave is more loosey goosey and Mark is more like pound you into the, into the pavement. So stylistically, Dave's not going to get a feel like wrestlers at his weight class based on the the brawling style that Mark would have wrestled in that era. So it would it's not uncommon for 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 people that are related to to not train together. Now, most of the time you, you like twins, for example, train together all the time. But you know you've got brothers training in different spots, and you know whether it be an age gap there. I mean it's it's not uncommon now, especially since there's more options. But you know they did go to the same college. They you know they they were together a lot in their career. But, you know, as, as they got older, they got to become adults. They had lives and families. So, I mean, it's, you know, once you, once you have to put a, make a living to fund your Olympic dream, it's not like you can hang out around with your brother the entire time. So uh, there's, there's, there's different, there's levels to that, I would say. All right. All I want to talk about is that John DuPont is a crazy person. I want to devote, I want to talk about this with you all. So this is the first time I really got to know a little more about John DuPont other than his name because I'm familiar with the name DuPont from auto racing I think he that that name is a sponsor of a racer so I remember that was it Jeff Gordon I'm yes it sure. was Jeff Gordon aha cool um so that's all I knew about him or about the name DuPont and then I find out all this stuff and I'm just enamored by it and I don't want to find out more, but I want to find out more. Just it, it's it's such a it's such a weird story, and his life in Pennsylvania with his with his parents. Um, he was the youngest, uh, and all his siblings were much older than him, so they didn't really have a relationship with him. He wanted to be an Olympian, and just was convinced he could. Like even had like a mosaic of him doing the pentathlon. So just all these stories and just of a, a guy who was so sheltered in his life and it really built him up to be, a, you know, not what we would consider to be normal and ended up inflicting harm and threatening people, you know, even if he didn't mean it. I'm just, I, I find him to be just the, the oddest person and it's so sad to, to see how that negatively impacted the sport of wrestling in the Olympics and USA wrestling, but, but, and then also all of the, the families that he affected in that way. So many of those families like the DuPonts and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts obviously have this, this certain place in American history. And we hit the mid 20th century and all the crazy starts coming out in those families. And it's sort of like once the Gilded Age is over, but they still have all this money, there are these various little bits in, in American history where those kinds of families work their way into these bizarre stories like this. 
Well, part of it too is their family tree didn't fork a whole lot. If you can kind of put two and two together there. I mean, let's draw Jeff Foxworthy references. That was something that's also been talked about, about the, the DuPont tree is they're like distrusting of the outsiders. Like, all right, there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of cousins that were, uh, you know, married. So we can draw some conclusions on, on just, you know, the, the genetic makeup of, of what that causes. But um, another thing too is, is the crazy, some people realize the crazy. So my co-announcer at the NCAA championships, Brian Hazard was a pretty good wrestler growing up and he lived in Northern Virginia. So it wasn't very far away from, from that area of Pennsylvania. And his dad was a wrestling coach, would not let Brian go train a Foxcatcher when he was growing up, would not, nope, you're not going up there. You're not going to that crazy guy. And, you know, this is, you know, parents are even aware of it. And this is, you know, early nineties. So this is still a couple of years before Dave was shot. So and and even DuPont was to your point about being obsessive about sport. DuPont gave money to the international federation uh, and there, they created a master's division, basically the, the old man division. So DuPont and that scene, there's a scene in the movie and a spoiler alert uh, where, you know, somebody's handing a, a wad of cash to a wrestler to, to throw a match against DuPont. Uh, and DuPont was according to everybody that, that watched him wrestle in that era was just horrible at it. And it was, it was just basically, Hey, I'm going to buy myself a world championship and call myself world champion. I mean, it's that type of, I mean, to be so rich, to, to be able to just buy yourself a whole division. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's, uh, it's unheard of because it's, you know, you, you don't want to ever compete uncontested or whatever, but uh, Hey, you know, the optics, oh, I'm a world champion. And then going to the world championships and funding the wrestlers from Foxcatcher. He was in the corner for, for guys from other countries that were training there. And then like I coach, you know, Jordanov is like, uh, that guy was totally good before he came to your farm. So it's, it's weird. And he also was an avid birder. So if you look up John DuPont's name, you might be able to find bird watching books. He wrote way back in the day. Yeah. It's, it's strange. It is. I remember coming across, I was like, wait, that John E. DuPont wrote a book about bird watching. Now that's not going to be on book club. I guarantee you. I, it's strange. Yes. Weird, strange. And I, you know, Rich Bender's the executive director at USA wrestling prior to his position there. He worked as the events director and he told me a story one time he's coming out of Vegas and rich had to carry the team trophy to team Foxcatcher, And he says that DuPont came out of the back door, looked at me and went, I'm the devil. And just walked away from him. And rich tells me, so he's like, yeah, I knew I was, I said, I knew right then and there, that guy was strange and you know, yikes. I just remember Rich telling me a story. I remember Rob Cole telling the story. He's the head coach at Cornell. He was, he was a world team member talked about the tank that was in the, we talked about driving the tank around. Yeah, right. that's true. Like, and so there were Cadillacs in the pond, just driving cars into the pond frequently. I mean, and just, you know, shooting guns everywhere. Cause he had just acres and acres of land. I mean, just this, you know, and sometimes the imagery of of that fox catcher shirt which kind of became a little popular again because of the movie and channing tatum wearing it and you know i saw somebody wearing that shirt in fargo and one of the athletes that used to train a fox catcher who just reviles the whole situation had to leave the facility he's like i cannot be around that he had to leave the the shirt was a trigger so much that he had to leave the building so um the, the name uh, again. Some people refuse to say it. He's like the Voldemort of wrestling in some some ways. He's he's who he shall not be named. But yeah, the, just the weirdness. I mean, the stories 
I've heard could be its own show. I mean, and, and I wasn't even around then. So imagine the, what the people that actually saw it firsthand heard about it or, or, or had been at the farm or trained there or, or, you know, trained with Dave and Mark. And it's, it's the DuPont story is a very, very twisted. It's, 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 it's a tragedy is what it is. I mean, if, if it's a, it's in terms of the literary terms, DuPont story is a tragedy. It's not a tragedy in terms of, Oh, that's too bad. No, it's, you know, if you're going to put something that's just terrible from the get go, you saw, it, it was, you know, it was like watching a train wreck. And that's the way a lot of people describe John DuPont is him getting involved in this sport and, you know, given money. Okay. A lot of people made, made a living because of what, you know, money provided in that area. And then, Eesh. I guess there's, there's no real delicate way of, of saying what happened. It just, it's just, it's ugly. It's, it's still a black eye on the sport of wrestling. And, and you guys made the point. You, we, we took this great hero of wrestling away from us that, had, that at 36, I mean, if I'm 41, so Dave would still be here. What would Dave be doing right now? That's the one thing that I, I look at, you know, again, still Mark's story, but what would Dave be doing right now? Dave would be the biggest advocate sport of wrestling for boys and girls in the world. Dave would be so much to the sport of wrestling and so much to physical education teachers. And, you know, I, you know, Arnold was on the presidential council for physical fitness. That should have been Dave Schultz. You know, those are the types of things that Dave Schultz would have done. And sadly we can only just, you know, hypothesize on how great he would have been, you know, post 1996. You know, this reminds me very much of things that we talked about, around Athlete Day, when we were talking about all the uh, abuse scandals and gymnastics. And it was everybody knew, quote unquote, it was going on. Everybody knew John DuPont was a serious problem and a serious black eye on the sport. But like in Athlete Day, these coaches who were abusing the athletes kept winning. So people kept turning a blind eye to it. And with John DuPont, he kept pumping in the money. So people kept turning a blind eye until you can't, you know, until obviously he, he murders Dave Schultz or, or with athlete a, when you have Larry Nassar finally exposed. What upset me the most is that these things keep happening. We keep excusing things because there's a gold medal at the end of the road, whether it's abuse, whether it's, insanity. We keep excusing things and we as fans can't do that. Obviously we're not responsible for all of that, but we also have to love our athletes when they fail and when they're poor and when they're struggling and not just say a gold medal excuses everything you've been through because we need to protect these kids. And Dave Schultz should have been protected. You know, all those people at Foxcatcher should have been protected and should have had another avenue and shouldn't have had to rely on a man who drove a tank into a lake and was shooting guns next door. I mean, it just, we're not protecting our athletes enough. And that's going to be the case, you know, until things, you need to have those sparks every now and then, I guess, in order for things to change. Final thoughts from everyone? But I will just, uh, just, follow back with if you're interested in filling out the story if you've read the book and and honestly again from a there's a, a wrestling geek point you know there's there's facts in there i mean you know again it's it's mark's perspective but 
there's there are resources out there to help you fill in the gaps. The the two documentaries that we mentioned, Prince of Pennsylvania and Team Foxcatcher, along with uh, sadly the the movie, which um, if I may speak again, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, um, was the first time I technically really got to experience the situation, seeing it on screen and on film. I I you know you know the with the obviously you know the you know what happens. Dave gets shot. So when that I see that on screen and I'm, I'm I'm there and just seeing it, it just, you know, it's like one of those things like the movie. Yeah, it's a it's a good movie. I hated it. I hated every second. I mean, I, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, it's a real good movie. Get past the the, the factual differences in, in real life. Looking at it from an entertainment standpoint, I hated it. So keep that in mind if, if you're going to watch the movie based that the book's based on, but the two documentaries out there again, team Foxcatcher and, and Prince of Pennsylvania really do help fill out this story. If you're interested in, in filling out to know a little bit more about Dave, a little bit, know a little bit more about Nancy, uh, cause Nancy's still active in wrestling. Um, there are, there are shirts out there that do the, they, this brand Rudis, which I, I briefly did a podcast with, uh, at the Rudis.com. You can actually get Dave Schultz shirts. They've, they've got, um, you know, the rights to, Dave Schultz wrestling club, throwback shirts, you know, a way of life, Dave Schultz. I mean, uh, he, he's a great ambassador. So those are the things that if you want to know more about the Dave Schultz part of the Mark Schultz story, those are some places you can go and, and, and find something out. And if you're, you're engaged in it, you know, you know, the, <laughs> those shirts and, and such Nancy's involved in that company. So it, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool that with all the tragedy that happened around Dave's past, Dave's murder was, we, we still say the name Dave Schultz frequently. He's not forgotten. Mark's not forgotten. I know Mark's very bitter about a lot of things, but Mark, you're, you're an Olympic champion. You're not forgotten. Um, you know, our sport hasn't really done the greatest job at, at giving our past Olympic heroes their, their due. And, you know, I get that, but um, some of that too is also personal responsibility. So, I mean, Mark Schultz is an American hero in the sport of wrestling. Dave Schultz is an American hero in the sport of wrestling. Rulon Gardner, Henry Cejudo, Jordan Burroughs, Helen Maroulis, you know, I mean, we've got those heroes. So, um, and, and you know, Mark's story is, is sadder than most. And it, if you want to know more about this whole situation, again, those, those are my recommendations for documentaries that, that carry along or again, fill in the gaps for this story. The story is very tragic and I hoped this, w- this book would have given me more insight. I have seen the movie. I need to see it again. Cause I saw it when it came out and I get that the movie's got a compressed timeline for dramatic stuff and and it heightened the drama of the story but this did not give me the insight i had hoped for and even though mark and dave loved each other it it didn't seem like mark had enough details from his own life even his experience with john dupont to fill out a whole book and just it it, even with uh, throwing in the how i got to be an olympian uh olympic champion that still it still didn't do it for me it's just i'm not i'm not sure mark and i i'm not sure we'd ever like to meet okay so (laughs) that that'll put a button on this book foxcatcher um but like jason was saying if you want to get more information definitely don't just read this book look into other avenues the documentaries um the the foundations that are out there so um maybe jill if you want to leave some show notes and just kind of say, Hey, here's some other things you can look at that'll help flesh out the understanding of what happened at that time. And, uh, not just Mark's life, but Dave's life as well. 
So with that in mind, I think we can turn to our next book. Uh, and that book is going to be uh, more of a contemporary book uh, called Seven's Heaven, not Seventh Heaven with a TH, but Sevens, like Rugby Sevens. And it is about the 2016 Rugby Sevens match at the Olympics, which featured the Fiji team winning it all. And this book was written by Ben Ryan and published right after the Rio Games. And I got to say, I am very excited for this book. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, I but I'm so excited. I don't know that much about rugby. Yeah, I was going to say my experience with rugby involves the rugby team at my college, which um, they were interesting drinking partners. And that's what I know about rugby. Yeah, I and considering rugby just started in 2016 in the Olympics, uh, the, the sevens, not the full rugby like they do in international competition. But the fact that it just started makes it even more fascinating that we are experiencing a new Olympic sport and how it kind of gets into the Olympics and how a, a country that is not known for its gold medals ends up taking the gold. And I'm just, I can't wait to hear more about that country, about the athletes that come from there, how rugby uh, is in their culture and how it all comes to play and wraps up in 2016. And, and of course, we're going to probably be doing this after the 2020 Olympics, which are in 2021. Uh, and so if you get excited about rugby as you watch it, make sure to pick up this book and then we will have a jolly good time talking about it probably August or September sometime. So thank you, Jill. Thank you, Allison. And thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Thank you, Claire. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Claire and Jason. Read Claire's blog, Light the Cauldron, and follow her on Twitter at Cauldron Light. Uh, the blog is called Light the Cauldron at blurbmusings.lightthecauldron.com. You can listen to the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant at matttalkonline.com and follow him on Twitter and Insta at Jason M. Bryant. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. And our next book will be Seven's Heaven, The Beautiful Chaos of Fiji's Olympic by Ben Ryan. If you buy it through our shop at bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod, we will get a little commission from that, which grows to greatly support the work of this show, especially as we gear up for Tokyo and then look to travel to Beijing in 2022. Welcome. To Shukflistan. Yes, it's time to check in with our past guests who comprise Team Keep the Flame Alive and are citizens of our very own country, Shukflistan. A lot of happy news this week. So our uh, archivist, Terry Hedgepith, is the new executive director of the Churchill County Museum in Fallon, Nevada. Someplace else for us to visit when we can travel again. Oh, exciting. Author Harry Bletstein's new book, Games of Discontent, Protests, Boycotts, and Politics at the 1968 Mexico Olympics has been released. Pick up your copy through the storefront at bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. And we're working on scheduling Harry to come back and talk to us about that book as well. And then finally, videographer Sean Callahan has been nominated for a regional Emmy Award with his politics partner, Allison King, for the NBC10 Boston Report Political Harmony. So congratulations. That is a huge honor. 
Uh, we'd like to give a thank you to and a shout out to our Patreon patrons for keeping our flame alive. We will have a new bonus episode for you coming out this week because we are at the end of a month and uh, we're featuring a little extra clip from Dominique Jones on that talking about 3x3 and uh, we're also talking about the Team USA Media Summit. So that is exclus exclusive to our bronze level and above patrons. But uh, you can find out how you can get it at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. It is the 25th anniversary of the 19 Atlanta 1996 Olympics. So throughout the year, we are featuring some of the stories from these games. Your and turn this week, so it, I get to hear a story. Exactly. Story time with Jill. I, I, this week I wanted to talk about the torch relay because this is the week that the torch arrived in the United States. So it was uh, the 100th anniversary of the Olympics. The torch relay was a big, big deal. So it was, did the traditional lighting in Olympia. They did the relay across Greece. It must have been huge because they had like 800 torch bearers in this thing. Tor the flame arrives in Athens on April 6th. They have this huge celebration in the uh, Pan-Athenic Stadium, and representatives of the 17 cities that had hosted the summer games before Atlanta were there, they all got little flames in the lamps, and during the next 21 days, they took them home, and they celebrated the flames in all of the former host cities, which I think is a really nice touch. Oh, I didn't remember that at all. I know, right? So then during that time, the main flame burned in Athens. And then when it left Athens to fly to L.A., all of those 17 host city flames were extinguished. Now we get to L.A., the torch or the flame arrives on April 27th. And the torch itself was it weighed 3.5 pounds, one of the lightest torches in Olympic history, and the first torch to be gripped in the center which I did As opposed not to on the bottom? Yeah, usually they had like the bottom with like a little handle. And I'm really thinking of like Helsinki or Mexico City or something like that, where they had the little handle, like a big guard and then torch. This one had a handle in the center. The handle was made of Georgia pecan wood. Appropriately. Yes, exactly. The On the torch is engraved the list of all the summer games. It had these 22 aluminum reeds that were representative of the total number of modern games editions. Then it also had the emblem of the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games and the Quilt of Leaves motif. Uh, the torch relay itself in America was pretty big. I think it was really big for that time. It was 84 days long, 10,000 torchbearers. This was the first time Coke was the exclusive sponsor of the entire relay. And the torch was scheduled to go through 42 states, Washington, D.C., visit nine, uh, 29 state capitals. The The route was designed to be a two-hour distance maximum from 90% of the U.S. population. And it visited 11 pairs of what we call twin cities. So it visited Albany, Georgia, and Albany, New York. Columbia, Mississippi, Columbia, South Carolina, that kind of thing. Huh. Which is, which is also interesting. Traveled by cable car. It had a special 19-car Union Pacific train, which had its own cauldron car in the back where the flame would travel. And it's cool because I had this posted on, or this fact posted on Twitter during our daily Atlanta moment, and listener Rosie has a picture with her of herself with the train, so she posted that on Twitter too. It's it's fantastic. I guess, I guess that would have been a smoking car. 
<laughs> uh, traveled by Pony Express. It traveled in space on the space shuttle. It traveled by tall ship. It traveled by Olympic rowboat, by bike, by Native American canoe, by a paddle wheel steamer boat, by a... This is kind of complicated, but a two-mile stretch of the old Erie Canal in New York was restored especially for the torch relay so that it could go on a replica of a 19th century mule-drawn packet boat down this section of the canal. Well, remember, this is the time when money is no object in the Olympics. <laughs> I know, right? We're just going to restore <laughs> the canal. Right? We're and, and, I, fund and you know that major works well, here. And, and you know that it's not necessarily the the Olympics or the organizing committee that says this, but you know, it's just like, oh, hey, we're looking at your area for the torch. Oh, hey, why don't we restore this thing for you? It'll be a great reason. That always happens. It went by ferry boat to the Statue of Liberty, and it was also on the only operational short Sunderland flying boat. Which is basically it's a British boat slash airplane. You could go down a rabbit hole looking at this thing because how all the different vehicles it was. It was yes, a lot exactly. Of boats. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a lot of boats. So when it gets to L.A., first torchbearer is Rayford Johnson, who lit the cauldron in '84. He passed the the flame the torch to Gina Hempel. She was the same person who passed the flame to him in 1984. Right. That's amazing. Right. That's wonderful. So uh, some other notable torchbearers, especially in the uh, Southern California district, director Robert Zemeckis, who, among other pictures, did Forrest Gump, Pat St. Jack and Vanna White, who hosts the Wheel of Fortune. Which tells you how long that show has been <laughs> on. Right. I think she must have been hosting today, the Today Show then, but Katie Couric, journalist, obviously President Clinton. Pro football quarterback Dan Marino. Other fun facts it, in Oklahoma, it traveled through Jim Thorpe's hometown. The torch went to Hoover Dam. In Henderson, Nevada, it was greeted by Miss Universe pageant contestants. I, I knew you would like that detail. Went well, to... that, that's so hot, we didn't have to worry about that flame going out. <laughs> in uh, Emporia, Kansas, it stopped at the Teacher's Hall of Fame, and Tokyo 1964 legend Billy Mills spoke there with the flame. So, okay, here's what happened in Chicago, and I have no recollection of this. I must have been, I, I have no idea why I knew nothing about the torch relay, but I must. it must have come in during the day, and I probably had to work. So, I just, those things you know, ignore. So in Chicago, they had a, a enormous gathering at Grant Park, which is one of the parks right downtown. And they had 106 Greek youths who were selected by the Hellenic Olympic Committee to participate in, exchange, in an exchange program. So they're all there, right? It, it's just kind of crazy at how much was going on. Flame then goes to uh, University of Chicago campus, where Pierre de Coubertin went to the 1893 World's Fair and found the site that he loved the place and wanted to advocate for it to host the 1904 Games, which, of course, was supposed to be in Chicago and lost out to St. Louis. It did the Boston Marathon route when it was in Boston. And this was a busy, busy flame. It was. In Rhode Island, it passed by the foundry where all the medals were cast. In Princeton, New Jersey, it was brought to the grave of William Milligan Sloan, 
friend of Pierre de Coubertin and who is considered the founder of the Olympic movement in the United States. Right. And if you go back and watch our favorite ridiculous miniseries yeah, yeah, from yeah. TV, 1896, he is the major character played by David Ogden Steers <laughs> of MASH fame. <laughs> And then it had a, a slumber, what it was called, a slumber party at the White House. So I was well, watching considering this. Considering Bill Clinton was president, that is very <laughs> concerning. So according to uh, this, this is I found from via a Washington, D.C. PBS station's history blog, which is a fantastic little blog entry. And uh, they referenced a Washington Post article that uh, talked about how the Georgia state patrol officers who were part of the Olympic caravan and provided protection to the flame, they had to be given access to the White House grounds to protect the flame while it stayed at the White House. And they didn't really get along with the Secret Service. <laughs> and so if the, the, the Secret Service found out pretty quickly that if they didn't let in the Georgia state patrol the Secret Service would have to learn how to take care of the flame. And apparently the flame has got a lot of detail going on. So they had to make space. They, they brought in a special cauldron so the flame could have a proper bed. Apparently the, the flame stayed in the blue room. Flame also went to University of Virginia. And, and that ceremony there, and, and like seriously, every time it stopped someplace, it had like three ceremonies a day. This was a big deal. This flame did a lot of work. So the flame ceremony at University of Virginia included the daughter of a U.S. athlete who participated at Athens 1896. I know. Where, where do they find these people? It went to the home of Jesse Owens. It went to this uh, Jasmine Hill Gardens near Wetumpka, Alabama, which was created in honor of Olympia, Greece. And they have a full-scale replica of the Temple of Hera there. Sadly, the gardens closed last year in May. And I was looking because I was looking it up and people kept talking about, oh, man, we had our wedding there. It was so beautiful. It was such a fabulous time. You could see all the statuary and stuff. It looked like a pretty impressive place <laughs> in Dalton, Georgia, which is a major carpet manufacturing area. They officially rolled out the red carpet on the entire roadway leading into downtown. <laughs> Too bad. Well, we I don't... hope that carpet wasn't flammable. <laughs> Don't know. Everyone was careful. Everyone was careful. So by the end of the relay, crowds the are... The flame is exhausted. The flame is exhausted, but then the crowds keep getting bigger and bigger. It slowed the torch down to the point where it was running nearly all day long. It was going like 22 hours a day. And it wasn't supposed to go that long. But the one thing they managed to do was keep the knowledge of who would light the cauldron a secret. And... We know who that is, but we'll keep that story there because that selection process was also very interesting. We got playbook updates. Yes, end of April, just as promised, the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee has released version two of its playbooks. Uh, the one for athletes and team officials has come out uh, today, the day we're taping, and international federations, broadcasters, press, and marketing partners will come out on April 30th. Olympic Family and Workforce will come out the week of May 3rd. Here's the short version. 
prepare to get a lot of Q-tips up your nose. Right. For everybody. Right. You're going to get tested every day, athletes, whether you like it or not. You have to test a couple times and, and have negative tests before you come to Japan. You have to show proof that you're got, got to have a negative test. You have to take a written pledge that you need to show immigration when you get there, saying that you are complying with everything. Every National Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee has to appoint a COVID liaison officer who is basically like your den mother, I think, taking or your class mom taking care of you the whole time. And nobody can, you know, eat on the bus. Nobody can miss their tests. I mean, this is... They're just going to be, every time they turn around, they're going to get tested again. Right. And, you know, yeah, we understand you have to eat, but don't eat anywhere else but the village or the venue. Please. Or get room service. And they're going to have an app that's going to have, like, the dining room is full right now. Don't come down. It's going to be like when you go to Disney World. So much about the Olympics, I end up comparing to Disney World. And it's actually true. It's kind of like that. What's the wait time on this ride? <laughs> and and that's how the, they're going to have to run this very much like you run a Disney World vacation. You're going to you're going to have your plan, basically. And everyone's got their own covid plan going on. And you you stick with your plan and don't necessarily mingle with other people. Do not deviate from the ride order. Do not any sidelines for turkey legs. You you go in the order of when you have your fast passes. I'm not that worried about most of the athletes because they understand, you know, a training plan. They understand you've got to go by this schedule. That, that's very true because I was I'm I'm very worried that somebody's going to like Ryan Lochte it. Well, and... Ryan Lochte is who I'm worried about. <laughs> you know, or just sort of the the superstar athletes like the basketball players. You know, those guys who who are superstars before they're athletes. Right. That's who's really the concern to me. Right. To... Where this is not the biggest moment of their lives. Yeah. And somebody who thinks the rules don't apply to me. That's right. not saying and... that they do, but there, there are people who just are like, the rules don't apply to me. Right. And the politicians who come or the, the corporate sponsor people who come who don't get that this is the biggest moment of a lot of these kids' lives, don't screw it up for them. Exactly. And don't screw it up for the hosts who are going through the ringer of I, I, that when they released this information that because it came out today, they're like 86 days to go. And I'm like, this is the longest 86 days ever for you guys, because it is nonstop criticism, nonstop. Cancel the games. Move. I like I don't understand how why you don't just push them back another year. It, are you living in Florida and you think that you can just put a games on in two months? Uh, we got a barn. Let's put on a show. Right. It's got to be very frustrating. And the numbers of COVID cases in Japan keep they are going up. But it's and, and I, I have this horribly American attitude because when they say, oh, we've had the most cases ever. And, and today the Kyoto News says five thousand seven hundred ninety three new cases in the country. And that's just enormous. And I and we're like, that's just a Thursday. Right. In one state, you know, depending on, on that. And and the Japan Times says only 1.1% of Japanese people have been vaccinated. And I, I believe they are also starting with the, the older population first. So it is kind of concerning that that is slow going for them. But 
we still have 86 days. So by then, more than 1.1% of the population is going to be vaccinated. There's encouragement to get the vaccine when it's appropriate for you. And I know that Australia has decided that their, their athletes are going to get vaccinated before they go to Tokyo. Some athletes in Canada have been vaccinated. We've seen on social media, Chef de Michonne, Marnie McBean was eligible, so she got her first shot. But, but there's going to be many other countries that don't have the same privilege that somebody, like in the United States, we've, we're doing pretty well in getting people vaccinated. But I don't know about some of these other countries, so it'll be tough. I hope that everyone sticks to their plan. We've got some answers for Russia because of the controversy of them and uh, not being able to compete under the Russian country. They finally have chosen a national anthem that's gotten approved. So they're using music from Tchaikovsky, which I believe was used at uh, skating world championships. Yes. That will be uh, the replacement for the Russian national anthem. They have a little controversy over their kit, which is heavily... Decorated in the Russian national colors of red, white, and blue. And also the shapes <laughs> resemble the flag. Right. So it really looks like they're wearing an artistic rendition of the Russian flag. But there is no flag on it. But there's no flag. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have stars and stripes, but I'm not. Uh, it's not the American flag. I just like stars and stripes. Mm-hmm. The International Paralympic Committee said that athletes and team officials are going to use RPC as the acronym for Tokyo and Beijing, and that will include how they march in for the opening ceremonies. They'll march under RPC. They, too, will use the the, the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto Number no. 1, if you want to start listening to it. Um, so you can sing along. I, I actually want to hear how they used it because it, it's like a long song. I, I, they have to be using a snippet. Right, because as we know, you can only have 30 seconds right, so. of your national anthem. <laughs> Some Japanese host towns are backing out of their role because it's too expensive to put the precautions into place. So I'm not sure how that's going to affect anybody, everybody. There are some towns that say, yes, we, we have relationships with these cities and countries already. We're going to maintain that and still figure out some way to do this kind of exchange. But that's a little sad news. Uh, other sad news from the Torch Relay. Uh, Kane Tanaka, the world's oldest living person at age 118, was supposed to carry the torch. She dropped out of the relay due to a rise in COVID cases in her prefecture. The Mainichi news site said that she's healthy and has a good appetite, but but they don't want to uh, expose her to any possible coronavirus. Torch Relay has had a case of COVID attached to it. An unnamed man in his 30s tested positive after taking part in the Torch Relay. What he did is unclear, but it happened in Shikoku. Remember when, before COVID, to cast your mind back, and we were talking about the fan areas that would have all the flowers. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I just want to think about that. Oh. When that was what we were talking about, that everyone was going to stand and wait online to get into the events and be surrounded by flowers. I wonder if they'll still have that. Well, nobody's going to be waiting online. No, but I mean, like, maybe, like, by the athlete's entrance, they can have some flowers for them. I think I'm going to make one for myself 
so that when I'm walking into my viewing area, I'll have mm-hmm. a little flower art. I like to... that idea. I've been trying to think of how to decorate the home media center. And, cherry and blossoms. Cherry blossoms. I want to make a, uh, a paper Mount Fuji. So I have that in yes. the background on the wall. Some paper lanterns. Also could work. And, and you know what else we forgot about? <laughs> this is, I... Inside the Games reported Tokyo to host Celebration Marathon next year to mark the Olympic and Paralympic legacy. And I immediately thought, you moved the, you moved the marathon. Why? I know Tokyo gets the anniversary marathon, but not the real Olympic marathon. <laughs> I oh, totally whoa. forgot about that. Yeah, T-Box said, why don't you host one a year later? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we could host it a year later, like this year for the actual Olympics, since it's happening a year later than it should have. Right. Uh-huh. That was the most bizarre announcement. So uh, Tokyo is going to be hosting this celebration. I guess the idea being that so many things have gotten canceled for the Olympics that they want to have another event in Tokyo mm-hmm. that could be a large crowd event. But a marathon in Tokyo, when you've actually moved the Olympic marathon so far north, just and that T-Bock was involved in this felt like such a slap in the face (laughs) after that whole Mara Novella controversy. Like he was going to slip that in. Right. (laughs) And like, you're all worried about COVID. So we're going to forget all about the Mara Novella. And you know, the mayor of Japan of Tokyo was just saying, you're you're not just going to run by and and pretend you didn't say what you just said. (laughs) But Hey, it's going to run along the Paralympic marathon course. And they're going to have it in autumn when they should be having it anyway. I'll throw flower petals at the runners. <laughs> like a flower girl at a wedding. <sighs> that actually would be really nice if at the starting line they threw flowers at flower petals at you. It does sound nice. I know people probably fall and have allergy Slip attacks, but let's just yeah. imagine the visual. Right. The flower arch, petals going. Let's make it a real celebration. There we go. You know what else to celebrate? News from our Shuklastan Ministry of Communications, who would like to remind you that we have a weekly newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays, and it has information that you will not get on the show. You can subscribe at flamealivepod.com. Scroll down to the bottom to the newsletter box because we don't do pop-ups. Because pop-ups are awful. Yeah. IOC has slipped this in, too. It's going to start the first ever Olympic virtual series. So this is a partnership with five international sport federations, and it will be a Olympic licensed event for physical and non-physical virtual sports. So is this their way of slipping esports under my nose? It is. It definitely is. So starts on May 13, goes through June 23. And it will do uh, virtual sport, eSport, and gaming. The sports involved will be eBaseball, Powerful Pro Baseball 2020. The, there's going to be some cycling. There's going to be rowing, a virtual sailing regatta, and then uh, Gran Turismo uh, motorsports. But motorsports are not in the Olympics. But they are a recognized federation. Okay, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to surprise everyone. I'm going to say I'm going to take a look at this and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then I'll make fun of it. 
Well, we shall see. I mean, that's coming up pretty quickly. So we'll keep I'll an take eye a on look. that. We'll keep an eye on that. And I think that is going to wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you thought about Foxcatcher. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Oh, you want to join us next week because it's Mental Health Month in May and we have got boxer Jenny Fuchs who's going to talk about sport and her struggles with OCD and it is a fascinating conversation. As we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening and until next time, keep the flame alive. distinct stories that were woven together so uh, woven wove words problems